In part one, we showed that ultimate power in the Riverlands is a tenuous thing. We saw the rule of Blackwood, Bracken, Mud, various River Kings, the Storm Kings, Iron Kings Harwin to Heron, and House Tully. At River Run, the Tullys held power throughout the reign of the Targaryen dynasty, and since it is the king who grants the title of Lord Paramount, there is nothing exceptional about this. Before the unification under the Iron Throne, advancement by conquest was possible. Under the Targaryen dynasty, however, power shifts were much less frequent, as large-scale conflicts were prohibited by the king's peace. And this was effective, though of course we must give a lot of credit to the dragons, rather than a law. Shifts of power were still common enough, however, but under different auspices. War in Westeros under the newly forged Iron Throne began with religious uprising, then civil war, then rebellion. These supplanted wars of conquest as the prime shifter of political power and rarely did not involve the Riverlands. In this episode, we will focus on those conflicts, particularly the rebellions. The larger the scale of the rebellion, the greater the, advance, the opportunity for advancement and the greater the risk of loss. Sometimes that loss is absolute. In part one, we endeavor to show how often the Riverlands, as both a valuable and centralized region, was at the center of the bloody action. So here in part two, it will come as no surprise that a lot of these wars feature the Riverlands again as a key figure. Quite often, the river lords themselves do not agree on who to support. Thus, they become disunited themselves, and the Riverlands is doubly engulfed by violence both within and without. And it's funny, uh, before we even get started, uh, I just wanted to mention that Lord Heron, or King Heron, I guess, he is an ironborn. Absolutely. Uh, of, of Heron Hall. So, right. uh, and Heron Hall plays very heavily in both the show as well as in the books. Indeed. Okay, so, hello and welcome once again to the History of Westeros podcast. A podcast dedicated to the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin and the hit television show Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm just one of your hosts, Steve, a.k.a. the Friggin' Italian, way out here in Los Angeles. And I'm Aziz, out here in Atlanta. Uh, we have been working hard on part two here for the Riverlands. We, of course, uh, interjected an episode on the Red Wedding because of the timing and how big a deal that was for everyone. And oh, we yeah. Get in on the fun talking about it. So we left off in part one with the ascension of Aegon the Conqueror, and that is where we will get going here with the Iron Throne period. Yeah, the Iron Throne period. Uh, well, a few things mark the start of the Iron Throne period in the Riverlands uh, more aptly than, in, than anywhere else. It was at the Inn of the Kneeling Man. Um, the Inn is supposedly this, the very same spot where King Torhen Stark, also known as the King Who Knelt, he surrendered without a fight to Aegon the Conqueror. And this was a big deal if you've listened to any of our history podcast we always refer to Aegon and this just happened to be on the Red Fork right where the river bends going towards the southwest and it goes towards Tumblestone and the Crag. Now immediately we have something that stands out when we analyze that statement if we're keeping the geography in mind. Apparently King Torin came pretty far south whereas you might have expected him to give battle at the neck. Mm -hmm. I wonder about that though we must keep in mind that he intended to fight at first so he wasn't taking up a defensive position. He intended to come out and just go after Aegon and fight him, fight him where Gloves up. But he backed off on that. <laughs> His bastard brother, Brandon Snow, wanted to assassinate the dragons, in fact. But 
he when Torin King Torin saw the host uh, with the dragons and everything assembled before him, he changed his mind. So yeah. that uh, that and that of course uh, set the, the sage for history later. And this is a a, a, a great point to interject with uh, how Brienne, Jamie, and Sir Cleos, uh, which in the TV was uh, played. Uh, what was the character's name in the show? They gave it. It was like Alton Lannister. Or Alton, else. yeah, yeah, just a completely I, different character. Yeah, I, I remember thinking of Alton Brown. They're not similar at all. They're 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 no. supposed to be equivalent characters, but there's really except that ex- except they both yeah. died. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is. True. And uh, yeah, so they stopped there just before being captured by the Grave Companions, which in the TV show was run by Locke, as opposed to you know what we had in the books. So Arya is brought to the end at one point as well during her time as a guest, quote unquote, of the Brotherhood Without Banners. I mentioned at the beginning that the first type of war that would engulf Westeros would be religious in nature. So with that, we're going to start off with the war against the faith. That's an interesting point. (laughs) Indeed. The faith contested Aenys Targaryen's ascent to the throne, considering him a child of incest. Now, of course, the Targaryens are often incestuous. You might say, well, you know, why didn't they have a problem with Aegon, or was that a problem later? Well, technically, Aegon was not a a child of incest. He was a grandchild of incest and a great-grandchild of incest. But technically, (laughs) his mother and father were not both Targaryen, just just his father. His mother was, I believe, a Valerion, which... Hearing that audibly is not, you know, not Valyrian, Valerion, that's a house. So, uh, it, it appears that there were problems during this time, but open war appears to have been avoided during Aenys' time. But Aenys wasn't king for very long. He was sickly and weak and only reigned uh, maybe four or five years, I believe. Uh, but when Magor the Cruel, his brother, his younger brother, took the throne, uh, Magor had a much different attitude towards how to handle this war. Uh, at one point, he had just recovered from perhaps a sickness or maybe an attempted poisoning. We're not really sure. But as soon as he was healthy, he mounted Balerion and flew over uh, across King's Landing to the uh, one of the other hills. I guess it's Rainier's Hill or Rainier's Hill. I forget the name. Rainier's. Hill. Um, to the fortified sept uh, of the Warrior's Sons. And just immediately let it uh, set it on fire. Had Balerion uh, engulf it in flames, and had some soldiers stationed outside the doors so that no one could get out. And uh, shortly thereafter, the High Septon himself called for the faithful to quote put an end to the reign of dragons and monsters and abominations. Wow. So war was on at that point. It was it was pretty nasty. And uh, it's, whenever you have a religious conflict, you have a lot of things that aren't necessarily done. Uh, in terms of necessarily logic or uh, people are acting on faith and they're, and they're acting on what they might achieve in the afterlife. So you see a lot of decisions that maybe kind of make you scratch your head. Um, the North and the Iron Islands each had little reason to side with zealots from a religion not accepted by their own people, and Dorne was not a part of the realm at this time. So the war mostly involved the West, the Reach, the Crown Lands, and of course... The Riverlands. The first major battle of the war was in the Reach, and the slaughter there led to Bitterbridge gaining its name. The second, however, was fought at the Blackwater River, not to be confused with Blackwater Bay. Uh, this battle went as such. The Riverlord Leicester 
uh, fought against Magor uh, for the faith. And since the current Leicester Keep is a rather pitiful thing in modern times, modern, I always joke, I always laugh when I say modern times, but I can't help myself. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems likely their forebears were punished for their part in this war because House Leicester isn't such a big deal nowadays. Um, something knocked them down, and this is as, as safe as guess as any, as, as we don't have any other overall no, uh, knowledge of action by them. Uh, it didn't get better for House Leicester later. They had sons on both sides of Robert's Rebellion, and none of them survived. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> other river lords fought for the rebels as well, such as House Wayne. That name might be vaguely familiar. There is a Wayne named uh, Authorides Wayne, who was the steward of River Run, an older guy. Yeah, and uh, that, that makes a, a good point to interject. Also, there's also the Lord of Maidenpool, a river lord who fought for the king. And in one of the early battles of the war, which took place on the Great Fork of the Blackwater, it was also featured, uh, it had 20,000 men per side, as well as Balerion the Black Dread, and a, a, well, a terrible rainstorm, Lord Moulton, not to be confused with Lord Bolton, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lord Moulton of Maidenpool slew Lord Rupert Falwell, who was known as the Fighting Fool. And uh, this person had slain two knights of the Kingsguard during the battle. So Lord Moulton's win was very, very significant. So Maidenpool is now on the eastern border of the Riverlands, if you think about geographically. And it gives its name from the stories of Florian the Fool. Not to be confused with the fighting fool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you, and those who read the books, and it, it's even been mentioned in the TV show, Florian uh, is a character in mythology of Westeros. So, we don't actually know a lot about that mythology. The story of Florian the Fool comes up a lot, but you know, I, I couldn't really tell you too much about what happens, other than that, the, you know, he fell in love and with this maiden, and she fell in love with him, and um, they lived happily ever after. I guess I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? So but, uh, it is ruled now, as we said, uh, by House Mooton. Right. Uh, a, a segue here for the Mootons. We'll talk about them for a second. They're noteworthy for their loyalty to House Targaryen, which began with Aegon's conquest. As one of the first houses to swear fealty to Aegon, they had a chance to rise high in the king's esteem. Lord John Mooton uh, led the Targaryen army at the Field of Fire, for example, and that was the, one of the most decisive battles of Aegon's yeah, conquest. So that was a big one. This is a guy who wasn't even part of uh, Aegon's landing, but joined up really quickly and was uh, given a really important command. So that, that says a lot. Um, later... The Moutons marched with the hand with hand of the King Bloodraven during the Second Blackfire Rebellion. Maidenpool even stayed loyal to King Aerys rather than to their overlord Hoster Tully during Robert's Rebellion. Uh, however, during the War of the Five Kings, there were, of course, no more Targaryens, so they stayed loyal to their liege Lord Hoster this time and swore to King of the North and the Trident Rob Stark. This was honorable, but perhaps risky due to Maidenpool being a town not a castle it has a small castle as a part of it but it's also like as we said it's on the border of the riverlands so uh they took it pretty hard uh lord mooton was captured maiden pool was sacked half the shops and homes were burned or plundered but this is of course during uh the war of five kings and so jumping back 
It seems like Maidenpool's close proximity to the Crownlands and King's Landing might itself play a role in how they tend to side with the Iron Throne. Uh, any, any of these engagements that happen, you have to imagine that no matter which side they side on, they're going to be on the border. Yeah. Whether, it's on the, you know, whether they're right next to the border with their enemies on the Crownlands or whether they're you know, right next to the border or their enemies within the Riverlands. So it's always going to be a tough choice for them, I suppose. But they really didn't uh, flip-flop much. They stayed, well, at all. They stayed with the Targaryens until there were no more Targaryens. So I think that's a pretty uh, relevant sign. Um, and I think that it, it's probably true. It's definitely true, actually, for some of the other Riverlands houses that are near the Crownlands. Uh, we'll see that as a theme. Some of these houses are more likely to side with the crown than with the river lord, other river lords, and that'll be a repeated theme. I think that the Mutons probably took some pride in the fact that they were early supporters of the Targaryens and that they kept that loyalty for a long time. Although I'm not sure who, at the moment, there's no one to really brag about that to. <laughs> but maybe later. Yeah, and well, it being another. another relevant town um this time it's on the southern border of the riverlands and it's where we had the stony sept it's a very large walled town um the sept itself stands upon a hill with a stout holdfast of gray stone below it uh the the interesting point is is the holdfast is said to be actually too small for such a large town uh during the faith militant uprising that small sept was actually a major chapter for the for the warrior sons and how they could field at least 200 mounted fighters who were probably somewhat formidable presumably because it became a, a such a peaceful a peaceful sept fairly quickly after the faith militant uprising ended right and uh, if you remember the warrior sons were the same ones who got burned to death in the sept at king's landing by uh, by Balerion. Uh, so that gives you an idea of who these people are. That was a, you know, it, it was it's a, a big deal. It was more of a equestrian order for uh, the followers of the faith, sort of like knights, but but not quite. Uh, I, I think it was like the crusades. I compare them to the crusades. Um, yeah, there's something like that, except they didn't really go off conquering. Well, <laughs> they, 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 they didn't, didn't go off conquering, man, but, you know? but but they were armed. Sure, they, yeah. Um, now. The, uh, as Steve said, when the faithful faith militant uprising ended, uh, part of the deal was that they weren't allowed to be armed anymore. That was, yeah. That's why we're fairly sure that it became a peaceful sept. They may have held out for a bit, but there would, you know, I'm sure there were some packets of resistance, but rather pockets of resistance. But for the most part, the warriors' sons, the faith militant, were in, mostly disbanded, sent underground, and and uh, not legalized essentially. So, but. It, this this didn't come for some time. It didn't end on that battle at the Great Fork of the Blackwater, despite the huge losses taken by the rebels uh, and the faith. It ended years later, after the death of Magor and the ascent of his nephew Jaehaerys, later known as Jaehaerys the Conciliator. Later still, he became known as the Old King, but his first nickname came because of his legendary skills as a diplomat, peacemaker, and negotiator. Not only did he manage to end the war peacefully, removing all legal military powers held by the church, but he is credited for building a peace between Blackwood and Bracken that actually lasted 50 years. That might be the longest uh, <laughs> those two. between those two. Yeah. <laughs> that is, this is almost certainly a case, by the way, we mentioned this in the first episode, where members of the two houses actually married each other. We know that Blackwood and Bracken at times had married to seal peace. This was probably one of those times. 
which means it wasn't that long ago, 150, 180 years. Well, a bit longer, about 200 years, actually. Um, Jaehaerys led the realm to many years of peace, quite possibly the best uh, years the realm ever saw, I'd say. Which means there isn't that much for us to talk about, so we gotta have to skip past that. <laughs> His son was Viserys I, who was also an effective and well-liked king. Uh, for many years, he had no sons, uh, either through stillbirths, uh, death in the cradle, or just not having sons, all those things, really. Uh, he groomed his daughter, Rhaenyra, to inherit the throne. But very late in life, he did have a son, after all, uh, with a new wife. However, he still intended for his daughter to inherit, because she's the one who was trained for it. And at this time, there hadn't really been an established uh, distinction between women inheriting. It, it was a little more of a gray area. The men, obviously, there hadn't been a queen prior to this, but, uh, it, it, you know, it just hadn't happened yet. But most of the kingdom at the time was seemed to be okay with it, uh, especially because the king himself was very so clear on who he intended to inherit, and he brought her to councils and all this stuff, so he, he was clearly grooming her to rule. But that's not how it worked out. Um, and so when it all came down to it, when it was time for her to be crowned, well... Yeah, yes. Uh, many, many of these uh, outsiders, or, or I'm sorry, not outsiders, but uh, many other people without, within the kingdom and even within the council did not agree. And, uh, and the question was of who would actually wear the crown? Who would be Rhaenyra or Aegon II? And this dispute later became known as the Dance of Dragons. And we've talked about this on numerous occasions, and I'm sure we're going to bring it up again later on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, um, there's not a whole lot of specific information on the Riverlands during the Dance of Dragons. But again, since they are so centrally located and divided, it's quite likely there was some fighting going on, at least some infighting. It's very hard to imagine yeah. a scenario where the Riverlands were not involved. So it seems, it seems as though only Dorn was not subject to the Iron Throne at the time. And they stayed out of civil war, at least for now. And uh, perhaps the North and the Iron Islands were not involved as well, but it, it's pretty likely that they were at least and on a minuscule level. They certainly were asked to be a part of it, I would think. Uh, it seems like both sides were pulling out all the stops. I mean, remember, folks, this is, this is the event that basically caused the death of all the dragons. There were about 17 of them, I believe it was, before the dance, and... Within a few years after, they were not. Three. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, three. <laughs> Technically, many years later, there were three. <laughs> um, one of the families that uh, of Harrenhal that we didn't discuss in part one, we specifically skipped over them just and mentioned that we'd get back to them, was House Strong. Now, House Strong was most likely a key supporter during the dance, and a certain, uh, a certain Lionel Strong may have been Hand of the King. I say certain and may because... The source uh, on the, some of these things is known to be imperfect. I won't get into why, but um, just leave it at that. But if any of this is true, being on the losing side of the dance, which was an extremely bloody and brutal conflict, uh, while also potentially being near the center of the action, would certainly explain why House Strong went extinct. So, we know no true rebellions of the, uh, before the dance, but afterwards, there are quite a few rebellions. We'll pretty much be discussing the rebellions for the rest of this episode, actually. Um, the peace, the king's peace, I'm sorry, uh, it did keep the fighting to a minimum, 
but we're going to stay chronological and start with one of our favorites. Oh, yeah, I love this one. The Blackfire Rebellions. So the Riverlands actually played a very extremely central role in the Blackfire Rebellions. After all, two of the great black... After all, two of the great bastards were Bloodraven and Bittersteel, and both had ties to the Riverlands via their mothers. Bittersteel's mother was Barbara Bracken, um, who we've actually mentioned earlier. She was a notable supporter of the rebels. And Bloodraven's mother was, and I hope I pronounced this one right, Mm -hmm. Mylisa Blackwood. Bracken and Blackwood yet again never stops. I think I think we're gonna I think Bracken and Blackwood they're not the most important houses that we discuss in in these three episodes of the Riverlands that we're gonna be doing, but they may come up the most frequently. <laughs> yeah, they, they they come around quite a bit. Uh, and though it's not stated, it seems almost certain that the Blackwoods fought for the Loyalists since they just hate the Brackens. <laughs> and because Blood Raven was their kin through his Blackwood mother. And returning those notorious ever coming up also. Yeah, yeah. The Losons, Manfred of the Black Hood, betrayed by Damon Blackfire. Or rather, betrayed Damon Blackfire. He, actually, he betrayed <laughs> Damon Blackfire, I'm sorry. And he also may have been a pivotal factor in his defeat. Yeah, it's not hard to see how Heron Hall switching sides would be a big problem for the rebels or for the loyalists, really. But uh, And that's probably what happened in terms of the betrayal. We don't hear about any sort of on-battlefield betrayal. Like, we don't hear that Manfred had his troops on Damon's side and then just pulled some switcheroo and started attacking uh, from, you know, from within their own ranks. But mm-hmm. it may have been a, a commitment that he broke. That's kind of the idea we get. And keep in mind that uh, the Redgrass Field was the decisive battle for the Blackfire Rebellion. We do not know where the Redgrass Field was. We, no. It's just not... It, there's no detail on that at this point. I'm sure we'll find out eventually. But... Given where all the other battles of the Blackfire Rebellion were, it's a safe bet that Harrenhal wasn't too far off, uh, if not very close by. We have a lot of, there were a lot of battles in the Reach and in the West and in the Riverlands, so uh, most of the fighting in the war was uh, around those locations. So it's a safe bet. But uh, there's a lesson here uh, to be learned, and that is don't trust dudes named of the Black Hood. <laughs> <laughs> Or uh, probably of the black anything, really. Uh, black Walder, yeah, you don't want to trust him. Oh, no, um, God, Black no. Heron the Black, like, it's a pretty good list of, of people that you don't want yeah. to trust. Is that uh, a racist comment? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Is George R. R. Martin a racist? <laughs> there was a lot of talk about that this last week, wasn't there, about that last scene of Misa? Oh, oh yeah. that's true. There was. I, I don't really. I think there's other explanations for that, but I, I don't really want to. Uh, we shouldn't get into that. No, Let's not no, talk no. About that. It's not our, <laughs> it's not our place. No, no. <laughs> well, we won't touch proverbial ten foot pole. We will not touch it with. <laughs> uh, I mentioned before that we went from civil war to rebellion. Uh, the the pattern seems to be after the religious uprising. But as a as a minor segue there. It wouldn't be unfair to call the first Blackfire Rebellion a civil war, as it was essentially half the realm rose for Damon Blackfire. Uh, that's kind of a, a distinction that is, you know, what makes what changes is a civil war from a rebellion. I guess it's just how many people are participating. Yeah. But that's just that's just terminology. It's semantics. It's not terribly important, but I thought I'd throw it out there because it's kind of interesting. 
And the second Blackfire Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Mad Danelle Lufston. She of the rumored blood feasts and giant bats and cook pots of blood and bathing in blood, all those fun things. And what's up with the she bats? Ma- yeah, I guess, I don't know where the bat thing came from. It's certainly been the sigil uh, for, it was a sigil for two houses, the last two houses to Old Harrenhal before the War of Five Kings. Uh, but we don't know, uh, we don't know where it came from before that. We don't know the sigils of the houses before uh, House... Uh, Lothston. So, well, I mean, and we uh, brought this up in the last podcast, actually, or the last uh, Riverlands podcast about how right. it related to actual historical um, uh, characteristics of, of of a woman carrying a bat sigil kind of thing. Yeah, you know what? I think we may have just figured it out. She was Lady Bathory, right? Yeah, Lady Bathory. Bath- yes, Bat is the first three letters. Maybe that's where Martin got the. Uh, the idea for it that's bath, very possible bath, bathory bath bath a bath of blood you know i don't know <laughs> yeah. anyway so she made an appearance at the second blood fire of blackfire rebellion rather and with uh, she was actually leading her army which is which is unheard unusual. of you don't you don't see a lot of a lot of women leading armies not that there's anything wrong with that it's just not common there's in, nothing in, wrong in with westeros that. <laughs> we're just trying to say pc again we just keep going here um but she has she she's quite, she makes quite an appearance, and there's one detail from her appearance that we can kind of glean for uh, setting a historical perspective and kind of figuring out more about the Lostons. We actually got a couple of uh, emails from from some listeners who wanted to know more about the Lostons. So mm-hmm. hey, this is for you guys uh, and girls. Uh, so the the detail that I'm referring to is that it's mentioned that just her striking figure with her form fitting black armor and her streaming red hair. Well. What what can you say about a woman with red hair? Well, she's not an old woman. <laughs> no. She probably it's possible they do have hair dyes then, so maybe it was her dye, hair was dyed. But she was probably a younger a youngish woman at least. She's not past her prime, still perhaps in childbearing years. But we don't know if she had any kids. So, but also to supplement what we said in part 1 and just now, I want to add that the last of the Lothstons may have been hunted down, which maybe implies some sort of traitorous rebellious elements um the source for this is a hedge knight with dubious honesty but still the term hunted down uh sticks out to me um he gives credit to his own great great grandfather and companions to helping hunt down the last of the lostons that timeline is completely impossible that does not at all fit we know the lostons went uh extinct much later than that and we have an eyewitness character to that a character who smithed for them so, and this character is still alive currently in the books as far as, uh, as, far as the, the current uh, point would be. So, it may be that they were traitors or rebels and this character is simply off on the chronology, but they died out, like I said, about three generations ago. So, uh, and possibly as a rebel. So, I, there's a lot of misinformation there. Not, not, well, not misinformation, but... We just don't know. And some, some conflicting information, I suppose, is, is a better way to put it. But I, I particularly am a fan of House Lost just because they, these, this, the stories around them, it's really interesting. It's kind of cool. I'd like to hear how they died out and, um, you know, the, how they got power in the first place. And maybe one day George will tell us some of that. I hope so. And if so, we will report on that straight away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as we know, at least one night of House Smallwood of Acorn Hall actually fought at the red grass field on the side of the loyalist thorn smallwood 
and you might recall him. He was the stuttering first ranger of the Night's Watch who was killed at the Battle of the First of First Men. And uh, this will be more inclined to be in the books as opposed to the show. I didn't really feature him much in, as in the show. I think no, I don't. I don't think he appeared at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't recall him to be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think they mentioned that Benjamin was gone, and I don't think they ever mentioned on the show who was the replacement first ranger. But yeah. in the book, it was it was uh, it, it was it was Thor and Smallwood. Smallwood. Yeah, but uh, you know he died. <laughs> yeah, and so Acorn Hall, he's it's pretty much a large oaken keep with stone curtain walls. It's near High Heart, um, which is pretty much that really spooky place with all the weirwood stumps. Yeah, that that I like that place. I wish we could learn more about that one too. Oh yeah. But but um, so these are some good other good examples of houses that were that we know participated in the Blackfire Rebellion uh, and potentially some of the future Blackfire Rebellions. Uh, as an aside, also Arya visited Acorn Hall. That's that's why we um, why we where we get our info on it. She was there. She's the one. Uh, Lady Smallwood's the one who put Arya in the dress that she didn't like, and she tore it up wrestling with Gendry. <laughs> that should uh, remind you there. Now we move on to House Butterwell. Uh, whose lord, who was named Ambrose, Ambrose Butterwell, was handed the king to Daron II during the early part of the first Blackfire Rebellion. But before that, he raised a castle called White Walls around 172 AL, roughly, and that would have been just at the beginning of the reign of Aegon IV, the Unworthy. Now, my favorite. Now... Apparently, Aegon visited the brand new, spanking new castle of White Walls, Aegon the Unworthy, and proceeded to impregnate all three of Lord Ambrose's daughters. You know, this may have actually been before the new castle was finished. It may have been when it was still under construction. I'm, I'm not clear on that, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, Lord Ambrose was gifted with a beautiful red dragon's egg by the king. The egg. So, let you uh, impregnate my daughters. Uh, here's a dragon's egg. And, the, and, and, that's how it works. and just on a side note, this is uh, we actually learned this through the Duncan Egg novels. Right. So we don't want to talk too much specifically about that, about the plot of that novel, but we get some history details from that that, that we wouldn't consider too spoilery. Just in case, if you don't want to be spoiled on any details of Duncan Egg at all, even though, like I said, I, I don't feel like yeah. this is truly spoilery because it's just background information. Just fast forward about skip 30 ahead seconds. Three minutes. Yeah, just in case, just in case, we'll throw that warning out there. So it does seem like uh, Ambrose was uh, just, perhaps he was just incompetent, but he was a terrible hand uh, to the degree that he was accused of being a rebel synthesizer. That's how bad he was that some people suspected him. <laughs> so, so he lost his job, uh, though, either through that combination of incompetence and or sympathy for the rebels, we're not really sure. But he did send one son to fight on each side at the Redgrass Field. And, well, they both died. So that didn't work out so well. And his other son died shortly thereafter during the... Well, not shortly thereafter, but ten, maybe ten years later. During the Great Spring Sickness. So he was left with no heirs. Oh, yeah. So, well, despite all this loss and grief, Ambrose was... Uh, he was still pretty powerful. His wealth was uh, quite substantial. And White Walls itself was very impressive. White Walls was made of pure white stone. And it was quarried within the veil itself. It had floors and pillars veined with gold. And while it had rafters made of weirwood, 
at least the wood came from the trunks of previously cut down trees. Right, so apparently Butterwell didn't cut down any new weirwoods to do that. So Thank God. Know, we can give him a little bit of a pass, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, just that, that castle sounds ridiculous. Veined with gold, marble, veined with gold. I know, right? Quarried in the veil and drug up in the... That guy must have spent some serious money on that castle. But, since he backed the Second Backfire Rebellion, he lost his castle, and it was torn down. So, Oops. <laughs> Oops, yeah, indeed. That, uh, it's too bad. It's not like a pretty amazing castle, but it is nowhere to be Bad seen. decision. Yeah. yeah. Betting on the wrong informa- horse. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> the wrong horse, indeed. Information on the, or the, or the wrong dragon? <laughs> Information on the third and fourth Blackfire Rebellions is extremely scarce. I'm sure George will fill us in one day, but right now we only have very scattered details. We know that Bittersteel rode in both of them, however, which means they were probably pretty significant. Um, given his heritage in the Riverlands, which we mentioned before, uh, there were no doubt sympathies and loyalties tested in the Riverlands, even if the war didn't cent- centralize in the Riverlands. We, for all we know, it started in Dorne. Uh, in fact, we know that the, the Ironwoods rode with Bittersteel in, I believe, two of the Blackfire Rebellions, and I don't think they rode with him in the first one. So... Even if it started in Dorne, the Riverlands probably would have, you know, been a spot that would have been tested loyalty-wise. So we'll have to fill in that detail later when we get it, but right now we just don't have it. So let's move on. Yeah, well, well, one house whose uh, loyalty was likely never in doubt would be House Derry. Uh, They appear to have taken over the castle and surrounding area during the Andal invasion. Uh, The Derry's have been known to have gained a reputation for being very loyal to the Targaryen reign. Yeah, here's another house, sort of like House Mouton that we talked about before. These the House Derry, if you look at them now, they don't appear to be that close to the border of the Riverlands, but you got to keep in mind that they had much more territory before. They were stripped of a lot of their wealth and land. In fact, they used to control the area fairly close to uh, the Bay of Crabs, which is very far from them uh, in the Riverlands. They must have been very powerful for a time. But now they are pretty small and getting smaller. Uh, the The main uh, area of their castle is called Plowman's Keep, and it is known rather somewhat infamously, maybe quietly, for having uh, a set of tapestries going all the way from Aegon the Conqueror to Aenys II. Uh, Tyrion himself sneaks into the basement to see these tapestries. This happens off screen, but during the time when Robert and Cersei and the whole King's Party is heading north at the beginning of, beginning of Game of Thrones to offer Ned Stark, uh, the, yeah, to offer him a hand to the King Shop. So this this happens, we find out about this later, but it happens in the beginning of the series, essentially. So these tapestries were just, were on the wall just before the visit, Tyrion figures it out because he kind of realizes that for, based on the markings on the wall, like maybe like the way the dust is, you know, there's no dust there in these spots. Like, he can tell there's missing tapestry, so he goes and sneaks down and looks at them and jokes about what would happen if he showed them to Robert. And maybe he says, yeah, Robert might make me Lord of Derry. <laughs> so, Jamie and Cersei, also at this same stayover at Castle Derry, do it in uh, Lord Barry's bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't need to get me started on that. So, uh, of course, where was Robert during all this? Mm, if you guessed passed out drunk, you were correct. <laughs> um, 
On screen, however, Plowman's Keep is also where Arya runs off with Nymeria, or ran, ran, rather she ran off Nymeria after Nymeria bit Joffrey, and where they, uh, you know, had to kill poor lady. Uh, so this was this this was this is the way back south when you know they they passed they stopped Castle Dare on the way north, and then stopped there on the way south again. So I guess it's instead of a important castle it's now like a, a pit stop i guess I don't know, a royal pit stop i don't know anyway yeah it, well it's like a little bp gas station kind of thing you know uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe a truck stop uh, so in fancy, addition fancy truck stop. Uh, also to staying at uh staying loyal to the blackfire rebellions they also opposed their own lord paramount hoster tully which was a big deal for that region mm-hmm. uh and this was all during robert's rebellion so that was a pretty big deal to, to, to go into. And in fact, Sir William Derry, who was master at arms of the Red Keep, he was the one who actually smuggled Danny and Viserys away from Dragonstone before Stannis could even arrive with a fleet. He got them away, and he later died with them in exile. So House Derry also had some Kingsguard knights Mm-hmm. But you can learn more about them in our episode of the Kingsguards. One of those was brother to Sir Willem. And he was actually one of the guards that actually died at the Battle of the Trident during Robert's Rebellion, where one of his Kingsguard right, brothers and two of his actual brothers also died. Right. Sir William Derry, Master at Arms, and his brother, Jonathor Derry, and two other Derrys all died. Uh, at that battle, yeah, um, at the Battle of Trident. So at the start of a Game of Thrones, they aren't very strong, as their loyalty to the Targaryens cost them when Robert was crowned. Apart from the loss of so many family members, as I mentioned before, they were stripped of a lot of wealth and, and land, and well, their castle was never all that big to begin with. So uh, yeah, so they're kind of small there. And from there, it got worse actually. By the end of a Game of Thrones, I don't mean the series. We're not we're not doing spoilers. I mean the end of Book One. There are no living dairy males. The last dying during the War of Five Kings, which we'll get to a little bit later in this episode. Um, but in better times, we'll say the mid-250s AL, uh, Lord Derry took on a squire by the name of Brynn Tully. Tully. The Blackfish. Not long, exactly, although not yet the Blackfish. <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet, but soon, the future Blackfish. Not long after winning his knighthood, which he uh, won you know, just by being a great squire, I suppose. We don't really have any details on that. But he left... To go south with many others from the Riverlands to fight in the War of the Nine Penny Kings. Oh, the War of Nine Penny Kings. That that's a that's a kind of a big deal in the in yeah. the story. Um, they haven't really touched on it yet in the show. Hopefully, they will. Yeah, uh, they haven't touched on the Blackfires or on Ned's fam. You know, Ned's past. A lot of that stuff. So yeah. So I, I they got to do it somehow. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure they're they're keeping it mainstream and just keeping it streamlined and whatnot. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, sense, the yeah. War of the Nine Penny Kings is kind of a big deal. So don't forget, we actually have an entire episode devoted to all of this. So we start hearing quite a bit about House Tully, and we're actually going to get to see how that continues. This is now when we get into the very familiar names of Hoster and Brendan Tully. And it's important to mention, in case it's not clear, that the War of the Nine Penny Kings was a greater conflict that spanned both Essos and Westeros, but the aspect yeah. of it that is relevant to what we're talking about here is that it's 
uh, essentially synonymous with the fifth Blackfire Rebellion. It is. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be correct to call the War of the Nine Penny Kings the fifth Blackfire Rebellion, but it would be correct to call the fifth Blackfire Rebellion a part of the War of Nine Penny Kings. That makes sense. Um, it's it's sort of like how a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. <laughs> no, I didn't get it backwards. I got it right the first time. Anyway. <laughs> um, so Blackfish Tully and Hoster Tully. Uh, Blackfish Tully particularly distinguished himself in the war. He was regarded as probably the second most famous figure in the War of Nine Penny Kings itself, uh, second only to Barris and Selmy, who killed Melis the Monstrous, the Blackfire pretender, cutting his way through the Golden Company. Mm-hmm. So... It's not hard to see why Barristan was the most uh, famous from that exchange, but Brendan Tully was right behind him. And we don't know what he did in the war, but it seems like a safe guess he did the same kind of things that made him successful in the War of Five Kings under Rob. He was a ch- the chief architect of a lot of Rob's victories, um, and not just planning them, but in executing them. Mm-hmm. So, but another, but we'll get some of that a little bit later when we're actually talking about the War of the Five Kings, but um, more, a little bit more about Hoster Tully. A very interesting thing happens with Hoster. We don't really hear about any military action with him either, but we know he was part of the war. And we know that this is when he and Lord Baelish, not Peter Baelish, but Peter's father, became friends. Now, Lord Baelish would have been a pretty minor lord. You, We've seen, or some of you maybe have seen, if you've read a little bit farther, you've seen what his keep looks like his, his ancestral keep which i'm sorry if that's a spoiler sorry. but this little thing is uh, it's a pathetic it's thing it yeah it is it is nothing i mean it's it's a it's hardly worthy of being called a keep yeah it, it's um, an apartment outside of uh freaking maryland yeah so how did this little minor lord get the attention of hoster tully that's an open mystery yeah. but it resulted in Peter Baelish, a very, very minor lord, noble. It's so minor that I sometimes forget that he is technically born noble. I, I've referred to him as as lowborn before. I guess technically he is not, but it, it, other nobility would look down on him because mm-hmm. his family was so incredibly minor that they may as well be common born. So I agree. It's a bit of a gray, it's a bit of a gray area, but um, also a tangent. So. Uh, but this wardship is really unusual because usually you see similarly ranked families sending ch- children to, to foster with each other. So Lord Baelish must have done something pretty significant. Maybe he saved Hoster's life or he, I don't, I don't really don't know, but he did or something pretty special. a family member, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine it was something very noteworthy. But uh, so the wardship is unusual. Um, I'd like to know more about it, but we, we just don't know. So... Brendan Blackfish himself, five year, about five years younger than Hoster, like I said, or like Steve pointed out, he squired for Lord Derry, and I have to think that that maybe is related to his refusal to marry, uh, at first, a red wine uh, daughter, and some other ones as well. Hoster demanded that he marry, and there's something unusual about that. It's not really that big a deal for second sons to marry. It's not something that you, you really... For, you know, push that the, the Lord. It's 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 important for the first son to marry, and occasionally you marry off your other sons to create alliances. But throughout this the 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 books, we have stories of second sons just going off to find their own you know their own way, make their own way in the world. Yeah. They they get a, maybe they get a sword and a suit of armor, maybe a horse from their dad, but but no land, and they run off and they got to do their own thing. So something unusual about the Hoster's insistence that Brendan Brendan marry, but he never did. He refused to. 
And I think, I don't have a direct reason to connect these two events, but it's really common for a squire to take on the loyalties of the, the knight or the lord that he's serving, mm-hmm. especially because they're at a very uh, young age when they're, you know, when they're open to being taught things. They're, they're very uh, uh, easy to teach and, and to have an impact mm-hmm. on. So I don't, uh, so I have, a, have to, to wonder if Blackfish was, was just refusing to get involved in these entangling alliances. He saw what was happening in the Riverlands with, uh, with all these wars and families getting married to each other and being forced to be on opposite sides of each other, fighting their own kin at times, and I, he just didn't want to be a part of it. Now, another rumor is that he's just gay, and that is why he didn't want to marry. And that's entirely what? possible. There's no, we have no reason to either prove or disprove that. But, you know, anytime a guy doesn't, you know, is notoriously uninterested in women, you know, you got to consider that as a possibility. So, but there's absolutely no evidence for it. It's only something that I throw out there because he doesn't seem to care about women. <laughs> uh, he may just not care about women at all. And he can be a heterosexual who is just not interested. Okay. So. But uh, he was a master scout and strategist, as I pointed out. He um, had... Uh, Went gone to the Bloody Gate uh, after Robert's Rebellion to, to be with Lysa and to protect her. Partly, uh, this was an a- offshoot of his dispute with, with his brother about not marrying. Um, some more detail. He is responsible for... There's a great scene where Catelyn tells uh, some of the outriders that meet her as she's returning from her uh, foray down to the south to meet with uh, Lords Stannis and Renly. And when she comes back, she's... Actually, this isn't when she comes back. I'm sorry. She, she tells the scouts to not let Lord Walder send any birds to... Uh, this is when they... I'm sorry. This is when they just approached the castle, the twins, for the first time in the Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catelyn says that she doesn't want any birds being sent. She doesn't want anyone sending, anyone no. sending word that Rob's army is there. And when she tells this to the, to the scouts... They say, oh, yeah, Blackfish already had us do that. Yeah, and (laughs) and this was actually displayed in the show. Yeah, oh, you're right, you're right, it is. So we get a sense of the show, the show goes out of the way to point this out, even though Blackfish isn't introduced until season three, we get a sense ahead of time of how just on top of things he is. He's a really, really uh, intense, uh, he's kind of an angry guy. But um, he's a they, they, I, I saw some complaints in the TV show about making him out to be a bit of a thug, but I, I, I don't see him being a thug in the show. I think the way he talks in the book is kind of similar. He he's openly scolds Edmure and calls him an idiot and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I wouldn't call him a I, thug. I, I would just say that he's 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 very determined. Yeah, I mean he's a noble, honorable guy. So thug is definitely not the right term for him, but. I didn't see his. I didn't really agree with that portrayal of him on the show. That people interpreted. I don't think the show portrayed him that way, but people saw it that way. Um, so he also led Rob's scouts westward uh, bef- to in order to uh, set the stage for the Battle of the Camps and the Battle of Oxcross, which he led the van in. So wow. he's just all over yeah. the place doing important stuff. Yeah, yeah. So unlike in the TV show. He actually remains behind the Warden of the Southern Marches. So, unlike in the TV show, he actually remains behind as the Warden of the Southern Marches. Um, 
Well, most of the others tend to head off to the twins. Right, for the for the wedding. Yeah, right? for <laughs> the the famous wedding we covered last episode. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a great quote that of his that comes early in the War of the Five Kings, after Rob's first few victories. And he says, quote unquote, Peace is sweet, milady, but on what terms? It's no good hammering your sword into a plowshare if you must forge it again on the morrow. And this is, a, this is in response to some of the river lords calling for peace after Rob's early victories and saying, hey, we're winning, let's, Super you know, peace. let's, let's, yeah. let's, you know, quit while we're ahead. And Blackfish, of course, is not for that. He, he's an old soldier. He knows it's, it's just going to be a matter of time before Tywin comes back or what have you. And he's, he's more in favor of capitalizing on their success rather than using it as a negotiating point to, uh, to end the war. So what would I would take away from uh, the War of Nine Penny Kings and these details on, on Blackfish is uh, that it allowed several lords from different regions a chance to fight together. Uh, Hoster Tully and his brother and Lord Baelish and mm-hmm. as well as uh, Lord Baratheon at the time and possibly Tywin, possibly some of the men, uh, the high ranking uh, members of the House Aaron during. And in fact, John Aaron was there, but I'm not really sure about others besides him. So a lot of the this is this set the stage for a lot of the marriages that came just before uh, and after. Robert's Rebellion, including the marriage of, of Ned to Catelyn and the prior arranged marriage of Ned's brother to Catelyn and Lysa to John Aaron, so on and so forth. So oh, yeah. with that, let's move into Robert's Rebellion. Uh, we're done with the Blackfire Rebellions now, so this is a good time to jump into that. Yeah, Robert's Rebellion. I, um, uh, well, the Riverlands and House Tully were very, very big factors uh, right in the middle of things, yet once again, just dealing with the whole. Oh God, how do you word this? I mean, you, I mean, the, <laughs> just the chaos, the chaos I don't of know. everything. I mean, yeah, because I mean, so much was going on. I mean, Robert's Rebellion, the Riverlands, and House Tully were just such a huge part of what was going on during Robert's Rebellion. I mean, I mean, it, it just taking the concept of how. Robert is revolting as a result of his love-to-be being, quote-unquote, <laughs> abducted. And then, and, and that, that was a catalyst for everything. All right, so Robert's Rebellion, the Riverlands, and House Tully were huge factors in this. So right in the middle of things, yet again. It's true. At first, we had... Uh, some of the lords were reluctant to join Robert without uh, a stronger alliance or a marriage pact or something of that regard. And Hoster Tully was as central to this as anyone, perhaps as much as Robert even. He, of course, before the war actually broke out, he had considered marrying Lysa to Jamie, which is kind of an interesting what-if scenario. But oh, wow. as things actually turned out, Hoster already had a marriage alliance in... That hadn't, uh, you know, fully been invested, but was was, uh, you know, in place with House Stark, 
So he was already tied to them. Wow. And then he uh, married Lysa to John Aaron. And, of course, John Aaron was, you know, in the war completely. Yeah. Um, I, I Just a minor interjection sure. here. Imagine Lysa and Jake. <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> I, that's, that's just kind of... I mean, it's creepy enough having Cersei and Jamie. True. <laughs> Lysa and Jamie actually creeps me out a little bit more. Oh, that's to be that's honest. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, uh, she would have. She'd probably have to just like. She I, I, she'd have poisoned him or something. I don't know what she'd do. That just wouldn't have gone well. <laughs> she's she's yeah she's she. I'm sorry. She's just too. Irky weary. Yeah. Gross to me. He would have spent all his time. She, I mean, for God's sake, she baby fed her own son who was like ten. Ugh. I, on her breast in public. What would Jamie have had to say about that? <laughs> I mean, at least Jamie had the audacity to pretend like he wasn't their father. Yeah. <laughs> so, but on, on on the darker side of Robert's rebellion, Hoster had to do some things that maybe he wasn't so proud of or maybe that just were the necessity of war. Um, we talked about mm-hmm. how the Riverlands are often divided, especially in a scenario like this, and this is a good example of that. Um, in addition to House Mouton, who we mentioned as being you know, staunch loyal, Tar- Targaryen loyalists, uh, in fact, Robert kills Miles Mouton, who is, was a former squire of Rhaegar himself. And, but wow. this was this was uh, one of the earlier battles, the Battle of the Bells during Robert's Rebellion. Oh, and that that's an important discussion that we'll have to discover or discuss at a later. Indeed, time. that's a great that's a great little battle. Um, so, uh, Derry, the aforementioned Derry, as uh, as well as uh, House Goodbrook and House Riger, uh, were good examples of houses that stayed loyal to Ares and the throne rather than Robert. When Hoster got word of this, he attacked some of his own people to keep them from joining up with the loyalist forces or to encourage them to uh, switch switch wow. to him rather than staying with uh, the loyalists. So Hoster actually put entire villages of Goodbrook to the to the torch. And wow, while crazy. killing all the small folk, which is really, you know, that's not the kind of thing you, you think of the Tullys and the Starks, you sort of think of them as good guys you know that's not really how the story works they're not good guys but you still kind of think that anyway because they seem to be more honorable and better people than the lannisters and other people you know you know not not all across the board but in general but this is pretty bad i mean hoster going after some of his own people because they his their lord you know stayed with the uh, stayed with the king but that's the way of warfare in Westeros. The small folk always suffer for the decisions of the lords above them. They, you know, if you could, no one ever yeah. asked them who they wanted to serve. It was just, well, your lord is serving yeah. these people, so that's how it goes. This is your lord. Yep. Live with it. So, another example of Hoster being a little, maybe on the darker side, uh, or at least willing to stick his foot in that, uh, in the darker realms of things. He, mm-hmm. we remember the scene when he's dying, which of course is not in the show at all. He dies off screen, but on the book, Cat, of course, is there with him through a lot of it. Uh, so he is babbling about Tansy, uh, which is Tansy, and, and he oh, feels guilty Lord. about it. Something that's troubling him, something that he feels guilty <laughs> about, 
and eventually we work it out what that what that all thing means. He feels guilty. Tansy, Tansy. He, yeah, he feels guilty about forcing, Ly- well, tricking Lysa. I don't know if she was aware of it, but she was fed abortion tea, for lack of a better term, to eliminate the child that she got from Littlefinger. So, the Tansy, the Tansy tea. tea. So he feels guilty about that for some reason, and yeah, don't really know. Uh, uh, he he killed, you know, a, a child of his daughter. So I mean, you can see why he would feel bad about that. And the thing is, is uh, Tansy actually points out or comes up more than oh, once yeah. in the series, and uh, and not to get too spoilery, but I mean, it, it plays an important role in other character story arcs. Yeah, absolutely. And it might have also, part of his guilt may also have been related to believing that maybe this abortion tea uh, damaged Lysa's ability to bear children. Because remember, she had Robert Aaron, who is a sickly child, but there were other, there were stillbirths and miscarriages before that. So it it may be that her womb was damaged by this action, uh, by this action, and Hoster may feel guilty about that. Um, that would be interesting. Yeah. So, some other uh, tidbits about Hoster. There is the Battle of the Bells that we mentioned. A little more about that. A Stony Sept, which, which yes. is where this happened. The Battle of the Bells of Stony Sept. Now, remember, Stony Sept was the same site where a, a chapter of the Warrior Sons was uh, established. And Stony Sept is pretty much the southern border of the Riverlands. There were the second sons. Oh, did I say second sons? I'm sorry. Warriors' sons, yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, no, I was asking. Oh, no, no, no. Totally unrelated, yeah. Uh, okay, good. So, d- what happened, a, br- a brief overview of what happens in this battle. Robert hides in the town, and while well, John Connington has it surrounded and is trying to get Robert uh, to, and, and get you know possession of him so they can execute him or take him to Ares or whatever they would do, and that would end the rebellion. But yeah. uh, that didn't happen. Um, Hoster was wounded himself by John Connington, and uh, who was Hand of the King at the time, John Connington. And yeah, that is very important to know. But uh, Ned Stark, along with Hoster Tully, uh, his forces overwhelmed the, the Loyalists and put them to flight. Shortly thereafter, John Connington was exiled and replaced his hand. And mm-hmm. after that, we get to the most important battle. Yeah, well, this is uh, well, this is where the decisive battle of the Trident came into being. Yep. Um, this is where Robert actually slew Rhaegar, you know, pretty much the heir to the throne, and he slammed him with his war hammer. And and the thing to note is is what's no, notable is that Rhaegar wore this armor that had all these rubies in it. And when he slammed him in the chest with this hammer, all these rubies went flying into the river. And now we know it as the Ruby Four. Mm. These are the same ones that we mentioned in part one. So many of the kingdoms were split down the loyalist and rebel lines. I mean, it was like 
you know, one side was this way, one side was that way. Blah, and it blah, wasn't blah. just so simple as this kingdom fought for the loyalists and this kingdom fought for the others. Some of them were all together, but there was, especially in the Vale and in the Riverlands, there was, and in the Stormlands as well, there was uh, kind of a split. Uh, yeah. So they weren't all united at first. Yeah. And uh, so, so many of these kingdoms, as we said, were split down the loyalist rebel lines. And of course, the Riverlands was one of these kingdoms. So most of the Riverlands fought for Robert under Hostetully. Right. But many of these neighbors were forced into killing one another. And of course, House Frey being House Frey, <laughs> they stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the lord who, you know, pretty pretty much distinguished himself in his final battle of the rebellion. One lord that actually particularly distinguished himself in the final battle was Jason Malister of Seaguard. We mentioned Seaguard uh, in the first episode as a castle that was specifically built to fight against the Ironborn. Uh, lord Jason, check this out. He threw a sl- uh, slew three different lords sworn to Dragonstone during Robert's Rebe- or during the Battle of the Trident alone, not not during the war, during that battle. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I, I think I said it before. Jason Malister is one of the series. Hidden badasses. <laughs> Got it? Yeah, he is. He's like up there with Arthur Dane. Yeah, well, maybe not that high, but he is up there. He is up there. Uh, Got to <laughs> love... I, gotta, I really like uh, Seaguard, uh, the, the way they're portrayed and, and the, the, the house themselves, uh, the Malisters. Their, their sigil is royal purple on silver, uh, a very royal-looking eagle emblem. So it's a very, like, a haughty, noble symbol. It's really, like... They, it's, it sounds bigger than they are. Um... And their words are above the rest. Even I mean, if you want to <laughs> sound talk about being uh, that's high, pretty <laughs> talk about sounding high and mighty. That, that's pretty badass. I mean, uh, if you're going to have those kind of words, you've got to live up to <laughs> yeah. them. We hear about Lord Jason doing well in some tournaments, uh, you know, having some success in tournaments, and as well, um, there's a scene that really fits very well with the whole notion of him being kind of haughty, even though he is quite capable. So, in, in a sense, he he can he can. He, he deserves to be haughty, I suppose. He, 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 he can, uh, he's got good game, you know. Some people are haughty like Mace Tyrell, and they don't really, they don't really live up to it. But it sounds like Lord Jason, you know, he, uh, he has his he's, moments. He's a real one. Yeah, he's, he's there. So, but there's a scene where he's crossing, he's heading towards King's Landing. Uh, and Cat. Oh, and he crosses And he Caitlin. crosses Catelyn, Caitlyn, and, and she doesn't even uh, she sees him and notices him but he doesn't even look at her not let alone notice her he doesn't even look at her because she's dressed in peasant's garb and it really symbolizes to me the, the this the character of jason malister he's very dutiful but also just he is a lord he is not dealing with small folk he is up there yeah, yeah he's, <laughs> he, he, he's pretty short and and then we get to um his uncle so sir Danis, i guess uh, it's so I guess Dennis it's Dennis. Dennis. Yeah, I don't know how to say that. Dennis? 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 Uh, how do you yeah. pronounce it? Because George always spells everything. <laughs> he does. He does. Um, so, Sir Malister <laughs> yeah. is commander of the Shadow Tower, the westernmost castle on the wall. Um, and if you look at the map, and I, I wish I could bring it out for you, but <clears throat> it's the westernmost map uh, uh, tower. Along the wall. There's only three towers occupied, and that's yeah. one of them. So, he's Lord Jason's uncle, and one of the most experienced and high-ranking officers of the Watch. 
So now what? Danis, Dare, Daris, Daris, <laughs> uh, Sir Malister, Dennis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, he may deal with wildling sea raiders from time to time. His nephew, Lord Jason, has had more of a dangerous class of raider to deal with during. Balon Greyjoy's first rebellion. Right on. Uh, Roderick Greyjoy himself, Balon's uh, first son, led an attack on Seaguard, and Lord Jason Malster himself kills him. So here we go, Jason Malster killing another important uh, warrior. Wow. That's <laughs> and that uh, apparently drove back the Ironborn into that uh, in part, or, um, in, or perhaps that was the main reason that they fled. Seaguard has the booming tower. There's a huge bell that is rung when raiders come from the sea. I imagine it was booming quite loudly that day. Oh. Uh, we don't know for so sure, I, but it's I, likely I, the Malisters helped subdue the Greyjoys along with the royal armies at the uh, at the close of that war. We know that Sir Barristan... So would it be two rings? <laughs> I suppose it would be. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that we know that Lord... Or rather, that Sir Barristan was chief in, in subduing Old Wyke, and that Robert and Ned themselves landed um, on Pike. But there's a lot of islands in the Iron Islands, and they all they perhaps all would have needed to be subdued. So the Malisters being, you know, top dog in general about keeping an eye on the Greyjoys, it seems pretty likely that they would have been involved. So here's a few other things that he's done, though, Jason Malister. We talked about the, how he slew the heir to Pike and all those lords of Dragonstone. And when we get to the War of the Five Kings, which is imminent, we'll see him do nothing but succeed there as well. But it's always in the background. You always just hear, you know, this battle happened, and you hear a quiet mention of Lord Jason doing something really well. And uh, mm. he doesn't die at the Red Wedding or anything like that, so he's out there. So no. we'll be talking a bit about him later. One, uh, one other note. Um, he also scolds his son and heir, Patrick. For becoming too chummy with Theon Greyjoy. Theon and Patrick were buddies. <laughs> and he says he says to to Patrick, don't forget who our castle was built to defend against. I mean, these are two these are the yeah. heir of the heir to Pike and the heir to Seaguard, who are supposed to be kind of uh, uh, you know, blood enemies, and they're just chummy. And Jason's saying, Yeah, you know, just don't be too friendly with him. Although now <laughs> Now, uh, after a few things have changed since that conversation, I'd say that Lord Jason doesn't have too much to worry about as far as Theon Greyjoy goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, considering the way things have been going in both the show and the books. Yeah. So Seaguard, as we mentioned earlier, was built to defend against the Ironborn incursions. Uh, you'd think that a castle built in harm's way would be in the thick of fighting, but during the War of Five Kings, it somehow managed to avoid That's crazy, harm. isn't it? Uh, I mean, you've got the place that's built in the yeah. in the path of destruction. And Balon, of, and it's not like Balon yeah. didn't rebel. He's part of, you know, he, he took his thing in the War of the Five Kings. He did his, basically his second rebellion. He sent, he sent his children out to go and Yeah, invade. and now we have, so we have in this, in this second rebellion, after, you know, Theon, of course, he has no children except Asha involved in this one. And we have the Riverlands getting torn apart by Tywin and Sir Gregor and Sir Amory Lorch. Yet somehow Seaguard just, eh, no problem. You know, we're just... Eh, so, Anyway, one other kind of funny note. Um, it, it's, a bit, it's a bit outside the scope of what we're talking about, but it, it meant, it's, it's an interesting. House Piper, which is somewhat near the Westerlands. They're a, river, uh, a Riverlord's house, a Riverlands house, rather. 
They're they have uh, their one of their family members married Balon's father, Quellon Greyjoy. Balon Greyjoy's father, Quellon Greyjoy, was married to a piper as his third wife. So. Not to, not to get, for a couple of you were about to think I was going to say something like, wow, are you telling me that Balon has Riverlord's blood in him? Well, no, no. That was his third wife that had their very weak son, Robin, who died very young. So there were no actual Ironborn Pipers out there at the moment. But it is unusual to see the Ironborn marry outside of the Iron Isles. And to marry a Riverlands house is, is kind of interesting, especially one that's not that close to, like, the sea or, the, or, the, or inland anything. So, anyway, as we said, we're moving on to War of Five Kings now, so let's do that. Not far from, not far from Harrenhal, we have, a nor, a north of the confluence of the Trident, we have the Inn at the Crossroads. And you might say, what's so special about this inn? Why are we talking about an inn? But... Well, it, it, well, this inn is very special, and a matter of fact, it has a long history, and some very familiar things seem to have happened here. Uh, it's an inn of some sort that has been a spot for centuries, though it's been destroyed, rebuilt, and changed dramatically in its function. For example, the river changed its course about 70 to 80 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, I get that, that made me scratch my head when I read that. The, the river changed course? Yeah. Huh. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, well, that makes sense. I mean, if they developed the land around Okay, it, yeah, you're right. That thing. makes perfect sense. I, I had imagined it in the wrong light. So, I, I was thinking there was something else involved, but that, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, they developed the land. They built it up. Yeah, they got dikes and irrigation and ditches and, and all that sort of thing. You're right. Yeah, that, yeah that exactly. So the Internet Crossroads, as it's called now, it's had its current name since the time of King Jaehaerys, <laughs> and I hope I pronounced that right. So, a large three-story stone inn. It's not far downstream from the Ruby Ford of where you know, you know, we had Rehades, or I'm sorry, Rhaegar, get his chest slammed, and, you know, with a with a battle, fucking. <laughs> Warhammer! <laughs> Warhammer, that's it. Oh, God, sorry for the language. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, that, that's got to be a horrid yep. experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want that to happen. So it was, originally, it was originally called the Old Inn, but it was a successor to the other inns that had been there before for hundreds of years. The Old Inn was actually raised in the reign of King Yehades, who is said to have stayed there with his queen... Eleanor, during their journey. Uh, you'd think, I guess the old inn relates to old king. That's probably, you know, that's probably the name where it comes from. But that's just a guess. Uh, before that, it had some other names, such as the Two Crowns and the Inn of the Clanking Dragon, which gives us an interesting... Sub- the Clanking yeah. Dragon, I, I remember Right, that's a symbolic that. reference to the Blackfires. Um, this is one of the reasons, by the way, we're so sure of dairy loyalty. And it goes like this. There's a bit more to the story that we'll cover in the later episode, or in, the, in part three, but the part that's relevant now is that Dragon was built with uh, a, or the inn was built with a clank, like a, a, an iron dragon that was hanging from little wires, and it kind of, it got the name clanking because the little pieces of iron would whack together in the wind. It was a black dragon, and the black dragon was the symbol of the Blackfires. Uh, so when the inn was first built, 
when the inn was first built, it was just a black dragon. It had nothing to do with the Blackfires, but it, so it sort of became a symbol in retrospect. And Lord Derry one day, it just made him angry seeing it. So he hacked it down and chopped it imagine. into pieces and threw it in the river. So, <laughs> Oh, Lord. Um, but the thing that makes this inn the most familiar, the thing that we recognize it the most, is it's pretty much the spot where the War of the Five Kings started. It's where Catelyn made her speech about loyalty to passing Ah. soldiers of House Frey, Went, Bracken, and others. They helped seize Tyrion. Catelyn. Catelyn again. Catelyn, of course, this was a a well-executed plan by Catelyn. It was not a good idea to do it, but it it was well done. You know, I'd say that seizing Tyrion, given who Tywin Lannister is, was probably not the best idea, especially... That given that Catelyn had no real evidence to suspect Tyrion, but I have to admit she pulled that off really well. That whole getting everyone to follow her—I mean, they were already kind of sworn to her, but but oh, but still, yeah. some of them might have thought twice about laying hands on a on a son of Tywin Lannister. But but she set them up pretty well. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that poor innkeeper. Oh, I mean. <laughs> Uh, her name was, I believe, Masheda, Masheda Masha Heddle? Masha, I think. Masha, yeah. Masha Heddle. Okay. Well, but she actually pleaded with Caitlin to say, you know, hey, you know, take, take your stuff somewhere else. We don't want to be involved. But unfortunately, it didn't go very far. And I'm sure she was probably executed by Yep, Tyler she was hung. <laughs> shortly thereafter. And things didn't get much better for her family either. Who actually run the end? Yeah, uh, what better to follow up the nightmare parade after Tywin Lannister than Roose Bolton? So the inn gets taken over by Tywin, and she hangs Masha for just because this is where Tyrion was seized. So how unfair is that? She doesn't. She didn't want anything to do with it. She told Catelyn to go do it somewhere else, and she gets hung for it. So then Roose Bolton comes, and of course Roose Bolton because. Being the kind of guy he is, he hung most of the rest of the in the people at the end because they served Tywin. Now, and I, I, I'm sorry, but this—that's <laughs> just oh so not fair, is it? <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, these mm. poor people. I mean, all they're doing is trying to do running the yeah, operating they're business. Live and <laughs> they're just trying to live. They're just trying to live, and they're getting executed by Tywin. And by Roos. And they didn't and do just, anything just, wrong. <laughs> all they did was be there. That's all they did was yep. be there. And this is, by the way, uh, a theme that becomes more and more common towards the end of Storm of Swords. And, uh, you know, without being spoiler, into Feast for Crows a bit. Just lots of destruction and death around the Riverlands. And just kind of unfa- lack of justice. For you know. no reason! So... It is kind of funny though how Roose Bolton kind of just follows in Tywin's footsteps all over. He he he's a little hesitant to to chase after him off to the Green Fork battle, but he he follows him up at the inn, but and then he follows him to Harrenhal. He's Roose Bolton. He is Roose Bolton, and Tywin knows this. Tywin knew he is Roose Bolton. So we hear later on now uh, that the the inn was reopened as a brothel by one of Masha Heddle's relatives, but obviously obviously the oh, guy who did Lord. that he got killed too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can't win. I mean, I mean, you got to hand it to these uh, heddles, though. Uh, uh, the two nieces of Masha itself, 
open it up again later. And I say again, under the <laughs> Yeah. But we'll, we won't get into that because that nah, runs into kind of spoiler. But it's fun to point out that they just kept trying. They just won't give up. I like that. Oh, man. So. I, I, it gives me a headache just thinking but this about all, it. Yeah, this all really segues what we were talking about, the, the general destruction and, and hor- horrifying conditions within the Riverlands. It really, like we said, it was started by Tywin, and it's imp- I want to get into that a bit. Tywin's, his ravaging of the Riverlands, uh, spearheaded, yeah, and the hound. Uh, yeah, spearheaded by Gregor Clegane, designed to lure Eddard Stark out of King's Landing in order to capture him, thereby gaining a captive worth trading for Tyrion's freedom. This is a good plan. See, that was his idea. It was actually very simple. He didn't intend on destroying all the Riverlands or causing this big battle. Tywin's goal was actually to resolve things as quickly as possible. But once things got out of control and, and the scope of the war changed, he was going to see it through, of course. That's just his, the way of doing things. But let me review that again just to make sure it's clear. Tywin sent Gregor off to do dirty work because he knew Ned... Would, send, would go out to bring him to justice in person. He knew that would happen. That's what Ned does. Ned goes out to serve justice in person, especially when it's an execution. Yeah. Tywin knew that. We all knew that as viewers and readers because it was explained to us in the first chapter. <laughs> so he's the, he's the guy who does man. that. So it's funny that Jamie foiled this plan by accosting Eddard in the streets and in the show, spearing him through the leg in the book, Ned broke his leg, so that so Tywin had this great plan, and it probably would have worked, but Jamie kind of inadvertently screwed it up. So he because he couldn't go, his leg was injured, so he had to send Beric Dondarrion instead. Um, <coughs> and there we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's where we have uh, Lord Raymond Derry. Uh, he was brother of the three Derry men who died on the Trident. He died at the Mummers Ford. When trying to bring the hound, not the, oh, mountain that rides. You mean the mountain that rides? I'm sorry, yeah. the mountain that rides. I'm sorry, the mountain that rides along yeah. Beric Dondarrion uh, and Thoris Amir and others who would later from the Brotherhood Without Banners. So it's Lord Derry that himself is the primary speaker when the grievance about Sir Gregor, the mountain that rides is first brought before Ned. So shortly thereafter, Lord Raymond's only son, which happened to be a boy of eight, was murdered by Sir Gregor's men when they took <laughs> Thalman's key. So the second aspect of Tywin's plan was to hold the Riverlands in check. What he wanted to do was he wanted to put the fear of Gregor and Amory Lorch into all the Riverlords' minds so that they would be hesitant to send their troops north to meet up with Lord Edmure. Uh, so he basically wanted to give them the choice of allowing their peasants to be raped and murdered and his field, their fields burned, or uh, sending troops to, you know, to, in, uh, to, to their liege lord, as is their duty. But uh, Edmure plays kind of right into Tywin's hands. Not only does he accept this strategy from his lords of holding back their strength to, in or, in, just in case Sir Gregor comes by, but he sends his own men out to the nearby villages on the border to help defend those, spreading himself even thinner. Uh, 
So that's another good example of Lord Edmure not doing the smartest thing. So, so there's a little bit of history there, though, that may that that might be kind of might have gone undetected or unspoken of when we're talking about the history between Tywin and the Riverlands. Uh, Sir Hostein Frey mentions that he was a prisoner at Casterly Rock one time, uh, and he's 48 years old-ish, so this could have been anywhere from about 262, 262 on, deal. maybe. That's just a guess. But why would the Freys have been at war with the Lannisters? Probably not. They probably weren't directly at war with the Lannisters. They probably involved a skirmish between the Tullys and the Lannisters, because it wouldn't be... You don't, you wouldn't see the Tullys... Uh, you wouldn't see a lesser lord in the Riverlands fighting with a major lord in the West. That just wouldn't happen. Um, if yeah. there was a dispute between the Lannisters and a lord in the Riverlands, the Tullys would get involved. So, it's a bit strange, but there's a little more background on that. Lord Walder himself talks some smack about Tywin to Catelyn in A Game of Thrones when negotiating the price to let Rob's army cross. He just kind of goes off on Tywin, talking about, oh, he's all fancy and this and that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's some background on that as well. When Tywin was only 10 years old, uh, his, his father married his Dang. sister, Gemma, Jenna, rather, to Lord Walder's second son. This match was well below Casterly Rock's standards of marriage, even now, and certainly at the time, when the phrase were even weaker. But Tywin was the only one to speak up. He said a 10-year-old boy just talked about how this was a shameful thing, or we don't know exactly what he said, but he spoke up, and supposedly the things he said were so cutting that his, his own father, Titos, his face got all red, and he, he was flustered, and he was embarrassed and ashamed. But Tywin wasn't the only one upset about it. He was just the only one to say something. So Lord Walder probably heard about that. <laughs> Lord Walder probably heard that Tywin was, you know, speaking ill of his house. And I, Lord Walder, being the kind of guy he is with his pride and everything, he, yeah. you know, he remembered. <laughs> so, but of course, by the time of the Red Wedding, certainly Lord Walder was willing to let bygones be got bygones to a certain extent. <laughs> he was certainly willing to uh, hook up with the Lannisters when it benefited him. But when it didn't, he was certainly willing to uh, say anything he could negative about them and, and send his troops to fight them, etc. Uh, a great quote from Tywin that really shows what his attitude towards the, the common folk and, the, and the, the Riverlands in general and... Also just shows how willing he was to use terror as a tactic. See, Tywin isn't a cruel man by nature. He doesn't enjoy cruelty. He's just completely unhesitant to use it as a tactic. Or, a, you know, a, oh, he doesn't God, enjoy yes. hurting people like, say, Ramsay Snow or others or Gregor. But he understands how people react to people who like to do those sort of things. And he uses that as a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Here's the quote. Unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hote and his freeriders as well, and Sir Amory Lorch. Each is to have 300 horse. Tell them I want to see the riverlands afire from the god's eye to the red fork. So he tells the... He tells the... Wow. He That's basically tells the worst guys to go out and do their worst. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's yeah. a pretty big deal when you think about it. I mean, you, you got these... 
already malicious. Yeah, guys who are already kind of held in check by the fact that they have to follow the king's peace. And Tywin says, hey, do whatever you want. In fact, yeah, do it all. Yeah. Do it all. <laughs> Just go. Just go. So Just go. Actions like these, it's and huge, really. Actions deal. like these were devastating in the short term. But in the long term, they're potentially even bigger disaster because we've got the onset of winter coming. And you, you guys saw... We, we yeah. saw what happened in King's Landing with the riots, the the lack of food, how willing they were to to mob Joffrey yeah. and yeah. and to yell about um, you know their lack of food and to throw poop at him and all this stuff. Slingy, <laughs> slingy, exactly. This was related to all this destruction in the Riverlands. This is not this that, that's a piece of dot connecting that some some of you might not have done. The that's a direct result of all the destruction done to the Riverlands. We we pointed out in part one that. The Riverlands is the second most populous kingdom. And that's because they produce so much food. Yeah. And they export a lot of it. And a lot of it goes to King's Landing. Cities don't produce food. They import it. They don't have, there's no farms inside King's Landing. They get some, they get some of it by ship, sure. No. But there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no pasture in King's Landing. There's no, there aren't grazing cattle and, no. and sheep. That's all outside of the city. Yeah, so, exactly. That's all coming from exactly. the Riverlands. Exactly. So when... So, so talk, Think about how much of a disaster that sort of thing will be when when winter comes. If if the Riverlands are torched now and they're not producing food, and the weather is getting colder, yeah, there's probably not enough time for another harvest. They're yeah, going to be cut off. They're going to be cut think off. Think ahead to you know even if you haven't read past the Storm of Swords or haven't watched past the show, just think of how that is probably going to play out. Just guess. Well, we're not going to tell you, but just it may not have even happened yet in the, in the later books. It may be still building. But just think about how bad that is. King's Landing was already starving during Clash of Kings, and they got they you know they got things righted. They got some food coming in from the Tyrells, but the damage was done. The sort supplies are low. Yeah, and the Tyrells. We hear stories of how Gregor was destroying stored food. There was no purpose to that. He just did it. I mean, I don't even know. I don't think Tywin specifically ordered him to do that. But when you tell a man like Gregor to destroy. He's very thorough. <laughs> yeah, he's going to destroy, destroy, destroy. Uh, and and you got to think though that a lot of this really, even though I'm po- not exactly defending Tywin, let's let's be clear, but pointing out, j- just clarifying that what he was doing was uh, a tactic rather than just uh, him wanting to just destroy people because he liked it. But no, no, he. It was, on it was the, but in the same vein. This is basically all about his pride and the pride of his house. It wasn't really like his his power was threatened. It's not like House Lannister was being overrun or they were. It was all about the perception no. of what happens when a, a member of House Lannister is seized. It's as Tywin says, this is what happens. He wanted to he exactly. wanted to establish or exactly. perhaps reestablish what happens when you mess with his people. And he wow, did he he really sent that no, message exactly. to me, so. Um, so one of the first battles of the war, when it became a war, because at the point of Ned sending Beric out, uh, to deal with Sir Gregor, it wasn't a war yet. It was still just a, I don't know, a skirmish, an encounter, something that happened in the early, in in a a pre-war. Uh, but, but by then it was becoming close to that because Tywin had already sent Jaime with a huge army to go in Circle River Run. So... That and, and shortly after that, we had the Battle of the Camps, which was when the Siege of Riverrun was relieved by Rob's uh, lightning war action of sending all his cavalry uh, after splitting them at the Twins. 
So the Battle of the Camp shows us a little bit about Riveron and the difficulty in besieging it, which will come up later. So Steve's going to get into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just bread, bread, <laughs> bread. You know, uh, I mean, king bread. And that's all in reference yeah. to Joffrey. And that's where that whole... And if you remember in the show, that's where the riot scene yeah. kind of happens. And in the books, um, something much more grotesque mm-hmm. happens... But they fortunately yeah. There's like a dead baby and uh, exploding baby. I don't know. And then, although, although yeah, the rape of of lollies. But of course, they they got it pretty gruesome in the show with with uh, Sandor's rescue of uh, Sansa. There, (laughs) that was uh, Sansa. Yeah, I and that was that was kind of that was unexpected. I'll be honest. I did. I I didn't see that coming. I mean, because. It's off screen. You see Sandor goes after Sansa, but we don't see that happen. We just see him ride in with her and going, oh, look, there she is. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there she is. I I mean, uh, I mean, you know, and and Joffrey had manure thrown at him. And he's like, kill them all! (laughs) Because, Because he's a punk little kid and he wants to, you know, get his little revenge. And that's really what it boiled down yeah. to. Riverholm was not particularly large, but it was quite defensible. So, can leave itself some surrounded by water by lowering the sluice of the gates, which hold back some of the rivers. Which this makes effectively River Run a small island. This is why Jamie had to split his army into three parts. When he went out there, and this actually helped Rob, and as well, of course, the Blackfish, they were able to fight two of those armies individually, rather than as a concentrated whole. The third army fled, finding out what had happened to the first two. Right. So Edmure, later on, uh, in a later action in the war, um, you all recall Rob and the Blackfish scolding Edmure for his part in stopping Tywin from crossing the river, which he didn't want. They, Rob wanted Tywin to cross, and Edmure stopped him, which, in a sense... Bad Edmure, bad Edmure. Exactly. In a sense, that may have lost the war for Rob. Uh, so maybe they should have been more clear with Edmure, because they knew he was kind of an adult. So they may have should have been more clear as to why they should let Tywin pass. But in any case, Tywin did not pass and decided to go back to King's Landing and was able to, to defeat Stannis, which, of course, Rob really kind of preferred Stannis to be out there to give Tywin a bigger problem. But this brings us back to Lord Jason Malister, who did such a good job. It's, you can almost credit Lord Jason with doing such a good job of stopping Tywin from crossing because he was the main <laughs> like field commander Edmure gave him the job, which he shouldn't have. Not that he shouldn't have picked Jason Malister, that he shouldn't have done any of this. The fact that he picked Jason Malister, though, was a smart choice. If you're going to go to war or going to start a battle, you could do a lot worse than picking him. So Jason Malister did too good of a job. If Edmure had maybe picked a bad commander to lead that, uh, lead that defense, then maybe Tywin would have gotten past, and that would have actually been good for Rob. But... No, sorry, that's not how it went. Uh, no, unfortunately not. And, you know, around that time, either, I, I forget, it's either shortly after or shortly before that, 
In any case, uh, Edmure becomes Lord Tully as Hoster seems to die. It seems like he dies of a stomach condition. He talks about the crabs pinching him in his stomach. I don't know. Um, maybe some ulcers. I don't know. But the Blackfish is still around, unlike in the show. He is the warden of the Southern Marches. So he's still, oh, left, yeah. he's still left down there to defend that area against uh, any Western incursions while Rob goes north and gets married at the Red yeah. Wedding. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is where we get into Red Wedding, and which we already covered in its own episode. Right. <laughs> um, so we don't need to cover it here other than to point out that those Stannis is still out there. I mean, the War of, War of Five Kings is not even close to being over. This might be the end of the war as far as the Riverlands is concerned. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> and if so, maybe not for so long. Coming soon, in part three of our series on the Riverlands, we will enter spoiler territory. We'll discuss, oh, yeah. we'll discuss what happens after the Red Wedding, the aftermath of Rob's death, and we'll analyze the rather massive shift of power that's just happened. A long look at how ravaged the Riverlands are will be taken, and we shall check in with those castles and lords that haven't bent the knee. There will be plenty more, but of course it is difficult to discuss the specifics of topics in an upcoming spoiler episode during a spoiler Yeah, episode. and uh, it just should be noted that, uh, I mean, the fact that the Red Wedding was such an important major event in the entire arc of the show, I, I, it cannot be said enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I love the fact that we were able to cover it. You know, we just covered the show aspect last episode. And I wish we could do more, but, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> this is the history of Westeros podcast, not the history of the Game of Thrones TV show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but they did, in all fairness, did a fairly good job of executing the red wedding. I agree. In my opinion. Yeah. So that's it. That's all we got right there. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. So with that, thank you again for listening to the History of Western podcast. And of course, if you have any more comments, concerns, questions, or suggestions, you're always welcome to comment. There are many and more ways to find us. On Twitter, we're found under the Westeros at Westeros History on Twitter. Uh, we are username Aziz Steve. That's two words: A Z I Z space S T E V E on YouTube. Okay, and you can also email us at Westeros History, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook as History of Westeros. And same goes for Reddit, where we're History of Westeros, one word. For Tumblr, simply go to historyofwesteros.tumblr.com. And once again, I am Steve out of Los Angeles. And I'm Aziz in Atlanta. Velar Magulis. Velar Doharis.